Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osband, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Yuma, daf Yud Aleph, page 11. This daf really spends a lot of time talking about some of the halachot around the requirement for a mezuzah, what structures needs it, when do we need it, when do we not need it. And I wanted to read a small passage here from Amud Aleph. Amr Le'abai L'Rav Safra. So Abai says to Rav Safra, Hani Abule de Mechoza, so Abai asked Rav Safra, and we always keep learning about this city in Bavel of uh, Mechoza, where the, what's important here is that really it was basically a Jewish city. The majority of people there who lived were Jewish. And so he's asking Abai, why is it that the gates of the town of Mechoza didn't require nobody affixed a mezuzah there? Right now, it's kind of hard to believe this because I can't imagine this sort of happening, uh, you know, in a town in America and the diaspora, but you know how you always like sometimes walk around and you randomly see a store, you know, with a mezuzah on it and you're like, oh, the owners must be Jewish. But here we're talking about a full town that the gates were not on it. And again, the previous passage of the Gemara talked about, you know, why is it that you uh, would need to put it not just on your house, but also on your gates? Because the, you know, Pasuk basically says, right, specifically the Pasuk even mentions putting it on uh, the gates themselves. So Rav Safra answers, So he says, because those gates were structured, were constructed basically to um, hold up the Kubi, the, the, the Kubi tower. So in other words, they weren't really there to be gates. They were there to strengthen a tower that was in the city of Mechosa. So they're not typical Sharim. They're not typical gates. Now, Abai is going to question this, and he says, Amar lay. So Abai says back to Rav Safra, Vakra de Kubi Gufa de Bai Mezuzah. But shouldn't it still require a Mezuzah because of this tower itself? Because in the tower, there was a residence for the prison warden. And one of the things we learn about here, and Anne, I know you're going to talk a little bit more about this, that if something is a residence, it's going to need a Mezuzah. Because it's learned in a brisa. So the way Abai learns this is he quotes a brisa that says, if you have a shul um, and it, in it is also a residence for, let's say, the chazan of the Beit Knesset, you're going to need a, um, a, uh, a mezuzah. Now, I just want to point out the chazan there is not really necessarily... Uh, a chazan of what we mean, somebody who leads davening, it's more like a shamish, right? It's the person who sort of takes care of the, um, of the, uh, of the Beit Knesset. That's just a, uh, a side point there. Abai doesn't really, uh, you know, buy into Rav Safra's explanation. And so now Abai is going to give his own explanation. Ella Amar Abai, Mishum Sakana. It's because of the danger. Ditanya, now they're going to quote a different brisa. So an individual uh, mezuzah needs to be checked every seven years, right? And we know that that, that uh, you know, it needs to be checked twice in seven years. So in other words, every three and a half years, you check it. Most people typically do it every seven years, uh, but this is something that you need to check. Yes, I know it says the word shavua, but here shavua actually means years. But a public one only needs to be checked checked twice in a jubilee cycle. In other words, twice every 50 years. But Amar Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda says, Masa Artavin. There was an episode with Artavin. Now it's not clear, is Artavin a place? 
is a particular type of job that a person has. People are not sure exactly what this word means, but there's a story with an Artavina Chad, who was checking the Mizuzot in the upper marketplace of Tsipori, and an officer, um, an officer uh, uh, saw him. Um, and what happened? This is a non-Jewish officer, let's be clear, like a Roman officer. And he took from him a sign, a, a, a fine of 1,000 Zeus, right? So in other words, this non-Jewish uh, officer sees him. And, you know, basically, you know, some of them at first explained they thought he was doing witchcraft or something else, but they basically find him. So that's the Sakana, right? The, the Sakana is, is that it could be that if you're, and what's interesting is the proof they bring. Remember, Mahoza is in a town that's not, it's in Babel. It's not in a Jewish country. The proof they bring is Sakana that was took place from having a mezuzah or checking mezuzah or mezuzah being in a public place in Sipori. So even though Sipori is in Israel, uh, still was under, you know, the Romans were all around and they were really in control. And there was a certain Sakana with it, with it being in public. Now the Gemara has theological question. But then Rabbi Eliezer says, Right? People who are sent to perform a mitzvah are never harmed. And we've seen this, uh, we, we saw this before previously in the Gemara, right? So how could something bad happen to Artivan, right, this person? Because he was doing a mitzvah. We know bad things don't happen when you're doing a mitzvah. So the Gemara answers, shani. It's different where there's really a chance, a good chance that this something bad is going to happen. In other words, in this case, what happened with Tipuri is since they knew the Romans were all around and was basically looking for an excuse to sort of, you know, get the Jews doing, you know, sort of accuse the Jews of doing any type of wrongdoing, you know that there's a Sakana and therefore you cannot rely on the Shluche Mitzvah in the Zukin anymore because it's known that there's a danger. And then they bring a great proof, which Dichtiv. And so they bring a proof here from the story of Shmuel and, uh, and Shaul. So here... This is Pasuk and Shmuel Al Perk Tadzain Pasuk Bet, where Shmuel is basically ordered by Hashem to go ahead and anoint uh, David, right? Even though, right, Shaul is still king. And obviously, Shmuel is worried that Shaul is going to kill him. And so, therefore, what does uh, Shmuel say? Vayomer Shmuel, right? So he says, How can I go? How can I go anoint David? I'm Al- David, he's not the Melech yet. Because Shaul's going to hear and he's going to kill me. So Hashem says, So Hashem makes a plan for him and says to Shmuel, you take a cap and if you, you know, run into Shaul or any of his men, you're going to say, I've come to bring a, 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 a korban, a zebach to Hashem. And so what the idea here is, is that Hashem understood that there was a danger and therefore you couldn't rely on saying, oh, nothing's going to happen because you were sent to do a mitzvah, right? It was a mitzvah that Hashem sent uh, Shmuel to anoint uh, David. Um, but rather, even Hashem, you needed to prepare and basically come up with a way to protect Shaul because just doing the mitzvah itself was not enough of a protection. And that's the proof that the Gemara brings to this. So, you know, the practical piece that this Gemara starts off with, you know, why did this part, you know, why did this particular tower, uh, sorry, these particular gates of Mechoza not need a mezuzah. Um, first of all, I find it interesting that there was even a discussion that a non a city in a non-Jewish country 
would even require a mezuzah um, is fascinating in itself. But the fact that they sort of jumped to a large theological question uh, really just took this Gemara uh, to a very interesting place. And the proof that they bring is even more interesting, right? To bring an example where even Hashem recognizes that there's a Sakana, like Hashem could just protect Shmuel and make sure nothing happens to Shmuel. And yet things really have to function in a natural way in this world. And therefore Hashem sort of concocts an excuse, a plan with Shaul, with Shmuel to really protect him from Shaul. I think it's an interesting interplay, I guess, between mezuzah and the idea that a mezuzah, you know, not that we ever want it to be an amulet, but there still is this idea that by hanging the mezuzah, we end up with, you know, some measure of protection, right, on the inside of our homes. And that's kind of like not the story, right? The story is there's the question of what is going to be the protection and nobody's inside it anywhere. I, I, I don't really think... I don't know. It's always hard to know to what extent did Chazal intend this to be like a foil for each other, or is it just the way, you know, one thing led to another, and now we can, you know, interpret it that way if we want. Right. That's an interesting question. Like, I'd be making a little bit more of a comment on mezuzah and what people think about mezuzah, that even a mezuzah, a mezuzah is not an amulet. It's a mitzvah that you're doing, but it's not necessarily going to provide you any extra protection. Right. And and there are times that you might want extra protection and then you you turn to Hashem, you don't turn to the fulfillment of a mitzvah on a house where you are not in, meaning that you are not in. Right, exactly. All right. So I'm going to take us back to the actual details of mezuzah a little bit here anyway. Uh, we've got a brighta, Tani Rabbi Shmuel Bar Yehuda, Kamei And so first we have a list of places that are exempt from a mezuzah. Right, we talked about you know where you where do you definitely need a mezuzah. The brayta here gives us places that do not. Shishasharim to as mezuzah, beit hateven, uveit habakar, uveit haitzim, uveit haotarot, v'shar hamadi, v'shar sheino makure, v'shar sheino gavoa asara. The last one, v'shar sheino gavoa asara, we should all know, you know, from the you know, like if I woke up in the middle of the night and said, oh look, it's Ervin. Right, because a shah that is not ten handbreadths high isn't a makom, right? It isn't a separate, um, it is not a separate entity in that way, a separate location. Um, okay, let's go through what these are. Uh, the first is a storehouse for the hay, the next is a cattle barn, the next is a woodshed, a storehouse, the Median gate, because the Median gate it's a dome, right? So it doesn't really have you know two doorposts and a lintel. Right, that's that's a technical requirement for mezuzah. When you once you've got arches, now we do put mezuzot on arches, but it's a little bit complicated. And if the whole thing is a dome, these things get you know the fact that there's an exemption here is not unusual. Also, of course, we're still not talking about any anything residential. An unroofed gate, meaning if you just have an open to the sky, there's a gate that opens in or out, but there's no uh, bar across the top of it. And then a gate that is not 10 foot high, right, which we already knew. So Rava says to him, one second, you said you're giving me six that do not require mezuzah. And then you conclude with seven, right? Because if you count those up, the list that we just made, right? Storehouse for the hay, the cattle barn, the woodshed, the storehouse, the Median gate, the unroofed gate, the gate that is not 10 foot high, you get to seven. So Rav says back to him, Well, when you're talking about the Median gate, right, you've got a machalukit there. 
And once you've got a machloket, so maybe that's not really in the count of the six, which I feel is just like a, a, a it's almost an amusing aside. First of all, it shows that Rava was paying attention, right? That Rava says, you didn't give me the number that you were you said you were going to. And then, of course, the question of like, if it's not in the count, if there's a machloket about it, then why is it in this count? Um, which, you know, the the phenomenon of it makes it reasonable to put it in the count. The fact that there's a machloket about it, maybe not. Um, okay. And then I'm jumping down further on the daf. Um, now we have some things that do require mezuzah. Tanara banan. Another breakdown. Beta knesset. Oveta isha. Oveta shutafin. Chayevet b'mezuzah. Now this is different kinds of properties. Namely a synagogue. A woman's house. A house that is owned by joint, joint owners. Right? Each of whom. If each of them is is obligated in the mitzvah of mezuzah, then the house is obligated in the mitzvah of the mezuzah. The fact that there's a joint ownership at work does not negate the requirement of mezuzah. Okay, so then the Gemara says, Pshita, well, that's, a, you know, obviously, well, why would you think that these things would be exempt to begin with, that you have to come and say, these things need a mezuzah, right? Because keep in mind that this is not in a vacuum, and the daf, and even some of yesterday's daf, we're already talking about mezuzah, meaning if you're going to give me examples, a list, then it should be exceptions. And in here, the Gemara says, you want to have these be on the list of things that are obligated in mezuzah. You need to give me why you might think that they would not be obligated, because otherwise, why are we talking about them at all? Pshita ma'udetema beitecha, beitecha v'lo beita. Well, maybe because the mitzvah of mezuzah says, in your house, maybe that means in, in your house, but the masculine form, right? Um, so then maybe that does not mean beta, not her house, right? It would be only your house, the male owner, and not her house if she's the owner. Betecha velo batehem, your house, you the male owner, and not their house, not a joint ownership. And so then the Gemara concludes with this structure, which is a very, um, we haven't seen it in a while. It's a structure that is used to demonstrate the logic of the thing. The Gemara says, Kamash Milan, Therefore, we learn to the contrary, meaning, therefore, we learn that indeed all of these places are obligated in mezuzah. But it, the rationale is it's not so hard, right? Meaning, all of these places are, you would think, of course, they would need mezuzah. The question is, but what if you would come and, and try to explicate those biblical verses that talk about mezuzah to begin with, that are very careful in their language? And then when it says, Beitecha, maybe you th- would come to think, that it really only means you, him, the man, his house, and not a home that is owned by her, and not a home that is owned jointly, and so on. Um, all of, you know, there was a lot, I was impressed by how much discussion there was about this, like all the different types of houses, what the house is used for. Um, it, it wasn't, you know, in typical Gemara fashion, a house is not a house, a residence is not a residence and different structures can be used for different things. Some of them more appropriate for a mezuzah and some of them less appropriate for a mezuzah. You know, in its typical Talmudic way, sort of making things maybe on a level that seems a little bit more complicated than it needs to be, but I think also challenges us to really think through, like, what does a residence mean? What does it mean to say something is a buy-in? What are things that happen inside of structures to say that they're 
Yeah, and then and when the Gemara continues and to talk about you know exactly where is the mezuzah supposed to be affixed, right? Is it on the right side or the left side? When you enter the house, how do you pick up your foot to go into the house? It- Um, I would say that there is really a lot of intricate detail when it comes to this. And this is not a shocker because because of this discussion that we said before, right? That it should not be treated as an amulet gets a lot of really big, heavy discussion. Because the moment you have an object, right? It's an object. It has the name of God. It has holy verses in it. You put it on your house and you've got all this, like the trappings of something that is a a physical manifestation, right? It's a mitzvah, but it's a physical manifestation of... I don't know what, the interaction between the people who are doing the mitzvah and God, right? So the idea that there has to be all of this discussion, I really feel like it's to to hammer home, again, indirectly, you know, this is a mitzvah that has a lot of details and a lot of different potential cases, and it depends on the structure and depends what the structure is used for, and it depends on who the owner is and so on and so forth. And all of that is about the fulfillment of the mitzvah of before God. And don't treat this thing this physical thing that we hang up that has holy verses in it. Don't treat it as a talisman. Don't treat it as an amulet. It's a mitzvah that you have so many different cases to know how and when to apply all of those details. That's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydrogen website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.